Hello and welcome to Sport Unlocked, episode 60 of the Sports News Pod, the Diamond Jubilee. I'm Rob Harris from the Associated Press and alongside me, Tarek Panja from the New York Times. Rob, good to be with you. Good to be in such a privileged company. And we do have to start with some big news. I think that was the first nomination for one of these back in 2004, so... It's been a long time coming, but it really, really, really feels good. Um, thank you for all the support and everybody on the Times Sports Desk. They're such a good pleasure to work with, I can't tell you. And uh, thank you to you to my family. Congratulations, Martin Ziegler, Triple Sports Journalists Association Award winner this week. Congratulations, arise, Sir Martin Ziegler. Thank you very much, guys. Um, I appreciate it. As, as I actually said on the, uh, um, a lot of incredible journalists have uh, never won one of these awards, and a lot of them don't even enter. <laughs> but we also had some other good news on that night with about this podcast, didn't we, Rob? Yeah, we were the bronze medal winner in the sports podcast of the year category. So made the podium. We're medalists. Uh, only beaten by Talk Sport and Sky Sport, so the judges did choose us over some quite big brand media companies. Yeah, with a lot of financial muscle. I mean, if the listeners only knew the millions that we pour into into this podcast, Rob. I suppose it was nice to hear a lot of people mentioning it around the awards dinner on Monday night, as well as obviously mainly fating you. No, I think you know, just credit to you for your independent production skills, Rob, um, because not many people podcast will be doing that um so it's good no it was a good night um and you know now we're looking for, like as alex ferguson said looking forward to the new season history history you know, that the past is history the one thing on my mind often at these awards dinners particularly when it's a load of sports journalists in the room together is what would happen if a big story breaks you know you've got quite a few people who've been drinking quite a few broadcasters as well who might end up having to go on air and you're just hoping nothing big breaks. But that did happen during the week, doesn't it? Fortunately, not on Monday night. No, in fact, it happened uh, Thursday breakfast time. Um, in fact, I was uh, fortunate that I'd sort of I got a little bit of advance warning. So uh, um, I sort of was quite well prepared when the announcement actually came. That's what any oligarch wants, isn't it? Advance warning to maybe hide the rest well, I, I got a, I, I got an advance warning too because a certain Martin Ziegler called me <laughs> on Thursday morning, and uh, yeah, I wasn't particularly well placed either. I was having a, a, a coffee waiting for someone, and I thought, you know, it's always when you're not well set with your, as you said, Rob. At least it wasn't at a do or something, but you're normally on the road, or in your case, you might have been in a studio somewhere. <laughs> Well, actually, when the news did break that Roman Abramovich's assets were being frozen and he was being targeted with sanctions, I ended up on the phone to Alan Brazil. <laughs> of course, you did. But I suppose you guys went down to you went down to Stamford Bridge, didn't you, straight away? Um, because one of the things about the uh, about the sanctions is that basically they can't generate any money so they can't sell tickets they can't even sell merchandise and um so what, what did you find when you when you went down there yeah uh, we can get into all the various details there's quite a lot in a bit but the color was 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 strange because the people on the ground it was all happening in real time this obviously 
no one apart from maybe you and a few others knew beforehand that this was coming down the pipe. So the staff there had no idea. So you had a, a very strange situation. You had security guards. If you don't, if people who don't know Stamford Bridge, there's a, there's a couple of entrances with a con- into a concourse. And then there's a mega store and the hotel and the stadium behind it. So the security guards had to hurriedly put these barriers up and, and sort of not let people into that concourse um, unless they were staying. And inside the shop, for example, they were still serving uh, product merchandise um, until about 11 o'clock. And then suddenly this sign goes up. People had to put stuff down and say they had to shut the shop down. And then I, I managed to go into the, the Copthorne Hotel, uh, Martin, that was there, and said, can I, just to see what the situation was, can I get a room? And they said, well, they can't, they can't um, take any more reservations. And then um, I bought a bottle of water and tried to get another one. And then the lady said we had to stop serving drinks and food there as well. All very sudden. Yeah, sitting there, we thought that uh, we could be in breach of sanctions, actually, if uh, they ended up selling us any food or drink. It was unusual because there were also some Chelsea staff filtering in and out of this hotel. It's part of the complex that is adjoined straight onto the stadium. And it was part of the all the uncertainty and with the signs up on the shop and you know just huge doubts over the club I mean, I mean in terms of the hotel I mean I didn't actually realize that was gonna that was going to be affected as well obviously it is but I mean you're now gonna have a situation where they're still going to be having to pay all their costs and they can't no you know they can't generate any income I mean money is going to be flowing out of the club um, and the amount coming in is going to be greatly reduced in, in I mean if, we, if we, perhaps we can look at some of the details can't we yes yeah Martin massively do you want to do you want to go through the uh, the main bits and pieces of that three-page document it kind of spelled it out do you want to give us the headlines there effectively if the government was applying the sanctions and asset freeze completely to the letter then Chelsea would have to stop operating wouldn't it and it's only this special license that is in place that allows them to continue running as a club because the government recognises that they want the team to exist beyond Abramovich and it's not about trying to you know destroy the business. But some of the rules in place, such as not being able to sell new tickets for the rest of the season, so only season ticket holders can go to games, no away fans will be able to buy tickets, limiting costs on match day to half a million pounds, limiting Chelsea to spending at £20,000 on away travel, which is creating all sorts of questions over how they might be able to fund that, and effectively just preventing new significant sources of income into the club. Uh, Martin, there's also an impact on a couple of other bits here, right, Um, that I guess uh, are quite urgent. One is the signing of player contracts and transfers in in the summer, but also renewals of, of contracts. And the other one... If, if you've got any detail on what happens to the sale. Yeah, so just to, to, before we get onto the sale, just to, just to add another little bit about the financials. Um, so you, they can get money from the Premier League and that, that's already from existing contracts and into a, a special account um, to help pay the player salaries, for example. Um, but, you know, we've had a big sponsor, the shirt sponsor, three suspending its deal. Um, so presumably they're not going to be paying anything. So they're in a, a sort of fairly tricky financial situation. And that's why they, the club went to the government and said, look, we're in danger of basically 
going bust because we're in a situation where we're not having enough money coming in to cover what needs to go out. So, I mean, they're trying to get the government to relax some of the measures. Um, I mean, I think that. Well, can I ask? Can I ask why that's the government's problem? Well, I think um, that like uh, we've seen in Barcelona. Yeah, well, well, hang on. We've seen in Barcelona, for example, we're talking the major cost centres for Chelsea Football Club are these multi-millionaire player contracts. Now, we, we've seen the situation in Barcelona, for example, um, where, where they had to uh, perhaps cut the amount the players get paid now and promise something in the future. Or, or it's, the, it's, the, um, it's the staff who are the kind of, you know, the workaday staff, you know, who, who are likely to be the most important, most hurt if the club gets, you know, is unable to pay its salaries. But really... Is it is it the government's problem to keep this team at this level in order to pay these millionaire players their contracts? It's more, as Nadine Doris, the culture secretary, said, the fact that they see clubs as cultural assets and are committed to protect them for the fans going forward. So I suppose it should just be about ensuring their viability so the club can be sold and we can get into that. And there's questions over the process now over how exactly it is sold. But it, it surely they should have found a mechanism where actually... If there is an income to be generated for the rest of the season, for instance, you've got away fans willing to buy tickets, they should be able to collect that cash still, ring fence it, go to refugee causes or something, but completely separate it from the club. But I think to do so, and they haven't noticeably done it, is it needs an effective administrator putting in charge of the club. Martin, they could, couldn't they, change this, tweak this licence, because it's all very fresh and very new. Um, you know, they... I think you wrote it and we've written it that this this special license can be tweaked and, and, and added to as the situation demands, right? Yeah, so there'll be, for example, they'll be flexible on this £20,000 limit on um, away trips. If, for example, they, you know, they, they have to go and, um, on a European match abroad, then I think there will be flexibility on that. And they can't they can tweak it. But, I mean, to get onto the the sale because i mean i think that's that's the way out of this um is the government you know they're prepared to issue another and they'd have to do another special license for the sale but i mean this is going to be fairly rigorous you know they're going to be want oversight of the process um the rain group that was selling the club for abramovich um they've they've told prospective buyers that the process has been put on pause and I think we have a situation now where the club have to demonstrate that any of the money from the sale won't go to Abramovich. And that includes this grand idea he had of a sort of Roman Abramovich charitable foundation to help the victims of the war in Ukraine, because that's sort of under his influence. That won't, that won't wash either. No, Martin, can I, can I ask you guys, as well as this rain group, if they were paid by Roman Abramovich, they're probably concerned about where their money is going to come from as well. They're not working for Chelsea. They're working for Roman Abramovich, a man who's just been sanctioned. So if I was them, I'd pause whatever work I was doing as well because there's no guarantee they're, they're going to get any any cash for this. Um, Something well, we saw in the last week which puts a, uh, puts a hold on it is actually how many different bidders did we see coming forward who might not actually be launching a bid but got quite a bit of coverage and attention for considering a bid. Well, Tarek, you were you were talking about putting in your own bid, weren't you? At one point. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, uh, everyone in. else has. I thought my 
Modeling <laughs> a consortium, putting together a consortium, looking to gather a group of individuals. A, a group of podcasters who are interested in a West London football club. Um, some experience in the football industry. Um, no, it, it just seems that it was felt like an artificially pumped up auction. And we had that crazy number, that three billion or whatever that this this man wanted for his football team. You're not going to get anywhere near that. Martin, you mentioned something in previous pods about Chelsea's finances. And I found it really interesting. And, and when Rob talked about Nadine Dory's talking about protecting this cultural asset, I, these two things to me are, are kind of come, come together when we ask the question of what exactly are they trying to save here? Because Roman Abramovich has inflated... Chelsea to a level that it naturally couldn't attain. That seems clear through that 1.5 billion um, loan that he's now owed, right? And Rob, you said that they're trying to protect this cultural asset, which is what? What is Chelsea Football Club? Is it a elite European football club, or is it a football club that is able to carry out its fixtures in the Premier League? So it is. I mean. Under Roman Abramovich, obviously, it has been an elite club. It's you know the world champions in terms of the club, the the European champions. The future is unless you get somebody who wants it as a prestige symbol, like it was for Abramovich, or um, a state. You know, we've you know as we've seen with the Qataris and PSG, Abu Dhabi, Man City, Saudis, and Newcastle. Unless we, unless you have that, then you're looking at perhaps an American consortium regarding it as an investment. They don't want to put in a hundred million or whatever it is, 70 million a year to prop up the um, transfer market, uh, transfer spending and wages. So I think what we're going to have now is Chelsea is going to sort of settle down to a position where it's, I suppose, going to be more like the other London clubs where they have to sort of um, try and compete on a much um, smaller budget. And that's, I think that's that's going to be the future. So, you know, Chelsea are going to be more like Spurs than like Manchester United. And that's probably where the focus becomes on those contract renewals, which aren't the most important thing. Chelsea can lose players. I think the only thing the government should be concerned about is ensuring that Chelsea can just complete the season uh, so they can exist to be sold. Not necessarily about keeping this hugely packed squad with so many players and if these players do have to leave well then they leave and then they've got to um you know to rebuild the, the point is around this sale is now just how much is the club worth i mean this is one five billion pounds of debt uh bromovich says that he's not calling in those loans but if it's the government in charge of the sale well should they just do it particularly quickly the sale find the highest bidder but then also if the government's overseeing it what human rights questions around who the actual new buyer is as well. Also, we've got to be clear as well, I think we weren't that clear, that this asset hasn't been seized. His assets have been frozen. So Roman Abramovich is still in control of whether Chelsea is, is sold or not. And if, if he decides it's not, there's a big risk of the club becoming a, a zombie team, as it were, just kind of existing or, or falling into which is very likely if, if something isn't done with the costs it has into administration. And then we get into a whole different conversation again. And Martin, you know, you said um, <laughs> these people are going to come in. And if you're going to fork out all that money, 
to buy a Premier League club and, and maintain a Premier League club. A lot of these Chelsea fans are completely in love with Roman Abramovich, for example, for, for what he's done, won all these trophies. I think since he arrived in 2003, no ownership group or no owner has won as many trophies as this guy. Now, if I'm going to fork out all this money <laughs> and then I don't win as much as him and the fans say, well, you know, we preferred him and not you. Why, 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 why is it worth any trouble? Why is that worth my trouble? Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's an it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I do think. I mean, even with the you know before this sort of you know this kind of fire sale thing, this idea that Chelsea was worth you know, two to three billion. Um, just, I mean, that's just not really why you know. It, it, it's not, is it? Um, you can see there's a sort of the you know the fact that you know they've got a lot of expensive players and a lot of assets on, on the playing field, perhaps. But um, you got this huge issue with the stadium. That you, you know that's going to cost a billion to to, to do. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't to. be surprised if it if it goes for really quite a low price now. You know, so a billion, and then. Um, what about what about how Ken Bates bought it, Martin, in uh, back in the day for a quid and took on the debt? Why, 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 why should it go for anything if 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 that if it's encumbered with yeah. a loan? No, I mean, I think that's uh, that's not a bad shout actually. I mean, you you could do it that way, but when does that? But not not the debt to Roman Abramovich because I don't think the government would allow that. No. And this foundation that we did touch on, and it's had some glowing coverage in parts, but effectively, and we mentioned it last week, this would be a foundation that would provide a platform for Abramovich. We've had no details on what it would be, but the indications were this is an Abramovich foundation that would be, as he put it, supporting the victims of the war in Ukraine. And let's remember, Abramovich is yet to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You have seen how Abramovich's philanthropic gestures have secured him great status amongst political leaders, organisations around the world, even with the Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel, who is also the chairman of the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial. He only started a partnership with the museum a couple of weeks ago, and he actually issued a statement through them at the time talking about the importance of speaking out when there are atrocities and horrors around the world, referencing the Holocaust. But then we had the leak of a letter which was urging him not to, to be sanctioned from this same individual. But isn't that what wealthy people have done, you know, Time Memorial, um, you know, cleanse their images through these public donations? We had the Sackler family, for example, the family that owned Purdue, Purdue the, the, the pharmaceutical company behind... OxyContin, which is responsible for tens of thousands of deaths in, in America op- in the opioid crisis, you know, then their names are plastered over all sorts of things. And we, this is a tried and tested tactic, and it's it has worked up until now. Um, and speaking of image cleansing, buying a football club, perhaps, as we've talked about before, buys you tens of thousands, if not millions of willing acolytes, Rob. And yeah, we've heard in the last week, how those Chelsea fans are still sticking by Abramovich. There was a moment of solidarity for the victims in Ukraine at Burnley last weekend. And this is what they were chanting. Burn, 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 burn. 
Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's an indication of sports washing in action. If there ever was, it, if there ever, if you ever needed an example, yeah. And as the digital and technology minister Chris Filt um, has said, you know, the crisis in Ukraine is a lot more important than a uh, somebody who's brought success to a football club, basically. And, and I think we would all agree with that. Um, interestingly, Philp also told Sky News that if a, if a buyer wants to propose um, a, a purchase of Chelsea, then they can actually approach the government directly. Mm. So, um, and then they can request that license. Perhaps they just need to knock on the door of Downing Street to have a word with Boris Johnson. Well, here's what the Prime Minister did have to say about the decision to sanction Roman Abramovich. What we've uh, concluded is that there is enough uh, connection, enough of a link between uh, the uh, the Putin regime and the, the individuals in question to justify the action. And I think when you look at what is happening in Ukraine and you, you look at the, uh, the casual rejection of every norm of civilised behaviour in, in bombing a, a maternity hospital, I think people in this country uh, can see that people connected uh, to the Putin regime uh, need to be sanctioned, and that's what we're doing. So what I've always said is that we will continue to uh, ratchet up our sanctions as this uh, goes forward, as uh, Vladimir Putin intensifies his aggression against the Ukrainian people. Uh, we've taken the powers to do that, and that's what we're going to do. What I found kind of interesting is the kind of, I guess, he said, you know, we had to take our time here because we had to be sure to establish these links. But then if you see... If you see the um, sanctioning document, it said that Putin and Abramovich had a, you know, quote, close relationship for decades. If they had this close relationship for decades, how comes it only manifested itself in the last week as far as this government and Boris Johnson's concerned? Yeah, and they also referenced World Cup contracts for 2018 in Russia when the government says Abramovich benefited from from his association with the Kremlin, uh, also how his steel firm involved in deals that might have helped to create tanks, the tanks we're now seeing in Ukraine. He talked also about him destabilising Ukraine and his actions there. And in this document, it talks about his wealth, and that was actually just a uh, a number from uh, Forbes magazine. Yeah. Martin, why did it take them so long? to establish these links when they've been in plain sight as far as people who follow this stuff are concerned for decades? Mm, Well, you know, the the cynic in you would say, were they they trying to um, give him a bit of time to sell the club and because they they wanted to avoid any sort of controversy around Chelsea? um, Maybe that's the case. But, I mean, there there are lots of other oligarchs who they've also been slow to to sanction as well so maybe there's just a, a sort of general reluctance to you know you could, you could say all sorts of things about russians funding the conservative party in the in the past but i mean that's probably too cynical but um perhaps perhaps not perhaps perhaps, too cynical, perhaps not so we've been hearing a lot from the government finally targeting abramovich and his assets. We've been hearing from the Chelsea fans backing Abramovich, but particularly silent publicly for two weeks has been the FIFA president, Gianni Infantino. Despite so much focus on 
just what football's doing. The fact Russia has now launched appeal at CAS over its suspension from world football by FIFA and UEFA. And there's also, of course, been that scrutiny on Gianni Infantino's relationship with autocratic leaders, particularly Putin, you know, that we discussed um, on the pod uh, in recent weeks. And yet, where have we seen him this week? Going to Saudi Arabia to see the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Well, he loves it. He loves a trip to see the, the Crown Prince of the Saudis, isn't he? Um, I mean, I think he's been seeing that as a, a potential money tree for his grand ideas for, for some time, but not quite come to pass yet. No, probably not far from where he spends most of his time, I suppose, if the reports are correct, that he now lives in um, in Qatar. Uh, interesting in that room was also the, the Saudi defence minister for some reason as well with, with, with Jani and MBS. I mean, you know, there's a link to this weekend with MBS, of course. Um, Chelsea's first home game in this new era of sanctionedom, austerity, whatever you want to call it, is against um, Saudi-owned Newcastle United, um, who are now really just discussed as a normal football team again very quickly. That's doing very well and climbing up the table. We, we, we as a profession, we, well, our attention spans may be um, you know, limited and we, we, we talk about these ownership issues maybe at the start, and then at a time of crisis, and then in the 20 trophy-laden years in between, we tend to forget about it. Because some people say, yeah, but we dealt with that, didn't we, uh, at the start of the takeover? Why do we need to mention it? And they'll say, you, you know, that's been looked at. But I think what we've seen with Chelsea in particular, it's reinforced the need potentially to be reinforcing the source of funding, perhaps at key junctures. And it's obviously something that we face in Manchester City as well. How much to mention Abu Dhabi, the source of the funding, the people behind it. Is it every single match report, every single report about uh, the team? Or is it actually when there's something that is elevate, elevating the status of the team and we're talking about them on a sort of greater plane, that then it's important to say, but this yeah, is why. Well, there's also this personal thing, Rob, like, you know, you you could talk about it if you like, but every time you mention this stuff or, 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 or um, a question emerges from a presser, you leave yourself exposed to the the, the bot troll army, etc. And you, you're exposed to a lot of abuse. A lot of people find that uh, almost a chilling effect. You know, we really shouldn't, but people are human beings. The, the other thing is these clubs are quite powerful as well, aren't they? Um, plus the lawyers and all the other bits and pieces that often it's easier to push at the, you know, the, the or, or toe that route, which leaves you less exposed. And perhaps this, this story with Avramovich has, has shown that in its clarity. When you approach these things, obviously, as news reporters, sports news reporters, you're looking at development. So you can't sort of, you can't spend 19 years just sort of jumping up and down because you don't like something. It's not about not not liking something, though, but this is is the clear trend. This is the culture of the Premier League. And we don't talk about Abramovich. We've had had an arms dealer come through. We've had a human rights abusing prime minister come through. (laughs) We've got Mohammed bin Salman come through. I mean, this is this is the flavour and culture of the Premier League. As much as it is extremely popular and good football, the backdrop is stained with these ownership questions throughout the the, the thirty years the Premier League's been in, in existence. Oh no, no, I agree, with you. and 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 I think that those things should all be looked at. But if you were saying, you know, what you know, 
where we now take our eyes off the off the ball from Newcastle United. I I don't think that's the case. I think we do keep looking at it very closely, and we and we should do for all all of these sort of strange ownership structures. Um, but I'm just saying it. It's sort of it's it's inevitable that one one's focus follows the the the, the news developments. Now, there's always another transfer window, right? Well, I'm, I have to say it's it's a, it's a long, it's a many a long year since I've done a transfer story. Um, maybe Lionel oh, Messi, I think I, did, I got involved in a bit. One day we'll uh, get into the story of your uh, foreign trip with a team and how a transfer story was discussed then, and how it actually ended up appearing in public. <laughs> yes, how how the how 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 transfer stories can sometimes work. Yeah, yeah. Um, Back to Infantino, and I think one of the reasons why it's significant for him to be speaking, which he hasn't done, is I think others are appropriating his opinions in his name. And looking in Russian state media, they've been talking about their ban from world football and the sports minister has been talking about how this is an opportunity to develop local homegrown talent because we had this decision from FIFA this week allowing foreign players in the Russian leagues to be able to leave their clubs at least to the end of the season to join teams in other leagues outside the transfer window. And amongst the sports minister's comments talking about how much Russia has done for world football, the sports minister said, I know with what interest FIFA president Gianni Infantino looks at our country. He's reflecting the, the praise that Infantino has given Russia and the regime over several years there. Well, yes, well, he's Infantino. He's clearly a popular figure there. Um, Rob, something I you mentioned last week, and I'll have to ask you again. Any news on this friendship medal? Other people have started giving them back. Do you know if Gianni is going to give his medal that was pinned on the lapel of his suit by Vladimir Putin in, in the Kremlin that day back? Absolutely no word from FIFA on that. The latest is trying to say, well, isn't it a state honour rather than from Putin, but actually very clearly identified with Putin. Another thing I asked FIFA about when Infantino met Mohammed bin Salman, since FIFA put that statement out condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine in FIFA's name, not Infantino's name, I asked, did Infantino bring up with bin Salman the war in Yemen and urging an end to that war? No reply. Maybe they're very busy in the press office. Martin, you got some news on other Russian sports political figures, but this time in the IOC, is that right? Yeah, I looked into the issues about um, Russian administrators still keeping their positions in you know, various sporting bodies, UEFA, and I asked the IOC how come they had two Russian IOC members, including Yelena Isimbayeva, the, the former pole vaulter, um, double Olympian, who is a major in the Russian army still. Um, pictures of her in, in uniform. Um, she's been very, very close to Putin. And they said, oh, we can't, you know, we can't take any action against her. All we can do is sanction um, nations for breaking the Olympic truce. So a really, really strange uh, situation, I think, with, with, with her. Um, Sorry, why can't they? It's not in, the rules don't allow it. Yeah, but the rules didn't allow them to do what they did. Everyone's broken all the rules as far as Russia is concerned. I mean, 
there isn't anything in any one of these statutes for, for anything that's happened, which is why, you know, Russia are going to the court of arbitrage. I think they're picking and choosing, Martin. It, it certainly seems like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I spoke to Jonathan Taylor, the QC, the, the sort of the, the British lawyer who's done a lot of stuff around you know, Russia and investigations in, into dodginess and sport. He said he's been advising several um, federations and sporting bodies. Nisha said, look, it's not in your rule book, but just ban the Russians, whatever, and worry about the, the it afterwards. And if the Court of Arbitration for Sport sides with the Russians, then that's their sort of embarrassment and you need to be seen to be doing the right thing. And I think that's what everyone should be doing. Might be the end of that court. But if a, if a major general or a general in the Russian army, I can't remember the rank you mentioned, is major. major in the Russian army, is is a member of the International Olympic Committee at a time where Russia is invaded a neighbor and you can't do anything about that, then um, I think they've got some serious serious issues with their rule book. Yeah, I mean, and it, it just shows the inadequacy of the IOC at times and the fact they are willing to take decisions when necessary, as we saw the other week when they did decide to recommend that ban on Russians in international competitions based on the breach of the Olympic truce. It seems they can pin anything to that Olympic truce now if they really want to. Yeah. yeah. And all this as the Paralympics does continue in China with Ukrainian athletes, no Russians or Belarusians. And uh, perhaps China would be really welcome the fact that the one thing we're not really talking about as much now, that was the big global issue around the Olympics, was uh, their mistreatment, their crackdown on the Uyghur minority. And this now Paralympics is just passing off in the shadows because of the war. The Chinese state, like the, the, the Russians and other governments, have used sport for for their own ends politically. And there was a curious incident at the opening ceremony. Andrew Parsons, the president of the IPC, was delivering his speech. And Chinese viewers didn't hear a part of it. Mysteriously, his microphone malfunctioned at the very moment he was condemning what these are his words that he was horrified at what is taking place in the world right now a reference to, to to russia and ukraine um and the world rolls on you know as long as we keep and sport keeps awarding these great events big events to these countries they're going to use them for their own ends it seems yeah that's very unfortunate that microphone incident you know just bad timing bad timing yeah let's hope all our microphones stay perfectly clear and looking at some other news in the Champions League this week, of course, no Gazprom branding at the games now that uh, that deal with UEFA is on hold. And it was pretty lively at Real Madrid. PSG throwing it away just when it looked like they were going to reach the quarterfinals. That hat-trick from uh, Benzema knocking PSG out and the leadership was furious as we're... Uh, led to believe uh, Nasser Khalifa, the PSG president, going with the sporting director, Leonardo, down to confront, challenge the referee. So many different scenarios. But uh, one thing is we know that now Al Khalifa is the subject of a UEFA disciplinary case. Not only PSG president, European Club Association chairman, boss of in Sports, one of the main Champions League rights holders, and a UEFA Executive Committee member now being investigated for misconduct by UEFA. Yeah, so all pretty distasteful. Um, and the 
do you think uh, Tarek, if UEFA find that he, he's he's sort of uh, guilty of of this charge um, of misconduct towards a referee, do you think that's a, a resignation issue from the UEFA exco? I think it puts the entire organisation in a disrepute if a board member is carrying on like that. But again, if let's talk about the guy for a second. He's been given all the jobs. I think Rob described all of them. There's probably a load more as well. I don't know. I mean, if if you are get, get a battle, if you're given all of these 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 jobs, maybe you think that you're just so important that you can carry on and behave exactly how you like you can walk he's been handing out you know the biggest checks in world football as the you know as the president of being and the ECA as Rob said and the UEFA board maybe you think you can do whatever you like so you know uh, Martin it's really important that UEFA take firm action here and he's not seen as you know one of the protected people one of the friends here it's 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 vital um, especially given the fact that UEFA is under enormous scrutiny itself for, for the way it's conducted investigations into big teams and big people in the past. Yeah, um, um, I think it's uh, hugely embarrassing, actually. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. There's still been no denial from Al Khalifa, no contrition, no attempt just to say, well, this is the heat of the moment to try to actually cool things. Just silence. And the word from PSG has been more to sort of grumble about their treatment by Madrid. Obviously, the... The remnants of the Super League battle still, which does continue the fact PSG did not sign up and Real Madrid being at the heart of it. And perhaps that added to just some of the friction in uh, in the game. Um, of course, you know, that uh, PSG yet to win the Champions League. Maybe they benefited from a Super League. Yeah, and missing out on a, on a Paris um, Champions League final as well. Hmm. Well, as we um, wrap up this week's Episode. Anything else catch your eye away from Martin? the uh, the war or Anything? battles? Well, yeah, I think you were intrigued by this story um, that Matt used in the Daily Mail about um, every county cricket club in in England to install a, a multi faith prayer room. Tarek, is that right? Yeah, well, I was no, I was intrigued with that. You were quite furious about it. If I'm honest, I, I wasn't <laughs> furious. I was. So they're going to the the ECB are going to pay a million pounds for this. I I mean, can he just does it have to be? Why why spend a million pounds on? I mean, I'm not the sort of greatest fan of religion. I have to confess, but I just thought, why spend a million pounds on this when can you not can they not just allocate a room to be a prayer room? Yeah, well, that I agree with you. I I didn't I don't know what constitutes a prayer room. Um. That is any different from being just, you know, a room with a door. No. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm intrigued with the, with the spending. But, you, you know, the, the idea that there can be a space for, for people of faith to go in or even people who aren't particularly religious to have a moment to themselves, I think is 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 commonplace in, in you know, public buildings and in, in, in offices around, around, around the country. Yeah. Uh, the idea that a million quid needs to be spent, Martin, is um is surprising you, you know we, we we can look at this from a particularly british point of view but sat and tarot we've both been at games saying something like Qatar, where you might get an entire team of muslim players who do pray at half time for instance and you see in and around the dressing room 
Yeah, no, it's perfectly normal. I'm just thinking this this idea that you got to build a special room is 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 um and spend that money is a bit weird because you just need to have a space in in your existing facilities. Um, like I said, it's, isn't it just a room? Yeah. Well, any religious leaders are always welcome on the pod from the Pope, Archbishop of Canterbury. They wish to. The award-winning pod, well, at least bronze award-winning. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think you can call yourself an award-winning, uh, award-winning, maybe not award-winning. What's a better way of phrasing it? Sort of medal-winning, 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 medal-winning podcast. Yeah, the Olympics, you don't uh, lose a final; you win. You win silver. For Was instance. there a podium, yeah. Rob? Unfortunately, not. We we did actually forget to get a picture. Did we get a certificate? We do actually. It's in the post because I actually uh, didn't realise when they said at the end, collect your certificates, that it was actually for those not uh, finishing at the top. And you actually had a, a suitcase full of trophies to take back. The heaviest trophy known to mankind, I think that was. It's heavier than the, uh, heavier than the Champions League trophy. Do, do you have to give it back? Next year, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, inscribed with the greats of the uh, mostly, I have to say, sort of people who who uh, sort of write very you know, very nicely about sport, um, which is not one of my strengths. But uh, there are a couple of sports news people on there. Um, Duncan Mackay, about twenty years ago, when he was doing stuff on doping, um, now working for Inside the Games, uh, Danny Taylor. When he was working with the Guardian and did a lot of stuff around it, uh, exposing the issue of sexual abuse in English football. Well, I was expecting to see um, a trophy behind your shoulder because we record this on a on a video type thing. Well, it, it, can you can you make sure it's there next week? Well, and the other two. Okay, <laughs> I, uh, I'll make that my main thing to try and remember for this podcast in the future. Go. Congratulations again, and uh, thanks for everyone as well for listening and for backing the medal award-winning pod too. And uh, keep your feedback coming to at Sport and Lots on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram from me, Rob Harris, and Martin Ziegler, and Tarek Panja. Keep well, keep safe. Very good, guys. See you later. Bye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye for now. <laughs>